will try to uh, explain why it's real by beginning with the essay which is the inspiration really for uh, quantitative literary uh, history and quantitative history in general is Fernand Brodel's famous 1958 essay on uh, the long long duration. And in that essay, in which indeed Brodel salutes the advent of a quantitative history, as he calls it, a new quantitative history that will break with the traditional forms of 19th century historiography, Brodel mentions as typical objects of this new history demographic progressions, the movement of wages, the variations of interest rates, productivity, money supply and demand, and so on. And all of these are clearly quantifiable entities, just as clearly they were completely new materials compared to the materials of traditional historiography, legislation, uh, political cabinets, military campaigns, etc., etc. It was the double shift that generated the break with traditional historiography. Not quantification by itself. But in our case, there is no shift in materials. We can study 200,000 novels instead of 200, but they're all still novels. So, where exactly is the novelty? Hello, and welcome to the Radical Thoughts Podcast. In this episode, we discuss the book Signs Taken for Wonders, Essays on the Sociology of Literary Forms, an early collection by the author Franco Moretti. This is our second-to-last book for the first set of the Radical Thinker series. We're excited to be almost done with what is our first season. Make sure to listen all the way through. We'll have some more information on what our plans are for the future at the end. Right now, you're listening to 22 Ghosts 3 by Nine Inch Nails. You just heard a lecture by Moretti on his newer methods of quantitative literary study. But in a second, you'll hear us discuss Dracula, Frankenstein, Ulysses, and how to connect culture and literature to sociology. I haven't read much more ready aside from two or three New Left Review articles that were mainly on his more recent project with computational quantitative analysis. So I don't know. I I think I have his book, an ebook of his monograph on the the bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. where he traces out literary stuff about the formation of the bourgeoisie as a class and a kind of cultural, you know, bourgeois culture as such. I don't know. Have you read anything else really by him before? Before um, I read this book, the only thing that I'd read of Moretti is the title of this book. I think it's a, it's a, it's an intriguing and uh, a brilliant title of Signs Taken for Wonders on the size on the sociology of literary forms. It feels like uh, he's going to uh, embark on a very impressive theoretical uh, project. So I, I, I was um, unfamiliar with his work, but curious to learn what it was all about. So I, I was less familiar with that the later, you know, uh, distant reading, computational methods, digital humanity work, digital humanities work, which is more... Uh, well known for um, now. 
Yeah, it it was kind of surprising to read it because he's so identified with that now if you look him up. Um, but it's also the the description of it still seems to imply that he's going to try and do something that's a bit similar, not from the aspect of doing a lot of geographical quantitative analysis or computational, you know, running it all through an algorithm, but it still seems to imply that, you know, as the title suggests, he's going to try and strip away the, uh, the allure of the great work, the great text that breaks from the historical bounds of genre and tradition and really say these are books and historical contexts connected to sociological uh, conditions. It, it, it kind of feels like it's trying to suggest that it's going to fit in in that project more generally. It, it has some references to the idea of understanding the role of popular, quote, normal literature of which these works are among. Um, he makes reference in the introduction to saying, what if Shakespeare's work is not a fundamental break from what's going on in Elizabethan literature, but is rather the kind of fulfilling complete or recognized form of the popular and expected literature of the time. But uh, I don't really know how much any of the individual works here really succeed in the sociological part. I think they're all individually pretty decent and intriguing literary commentaries. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely think that he's a non obtuse writer in his own way. I think he's pretty, pretty readable. He does a good job at having a, an academic voice that is also able to be um, enjoyable and sometimes a little bit more casual, but it's um, it kind of struck me that it still felt like the kind of literary criticism that you see from most somewhat left wing cultural critics kind of stuff you see from new left review mm -hmm. yeah. jameson etc i i mean and the strange thing about his uh, remarks on mass literature in the introduction is that most of the essays in the collection are you know texts that you would ordinarily consider part of the literary canon or part of uh, a high culture you've got you know the wasteland and Ulysses and Balzac and uh, Shakespeare, of course, and it, it doesn't necessarily feel like he's engaging uh, in the study of uh, genre in quite such a rigorous way as he does in uh, his later work. But I think that you can catch glimmers of what he would uh, end up doing with uh, distant reading in the introduction, where he talks about you know um, the relationship between masterpiece and genre, he critiques the what he sees as the conventional gesture in you know, uh, literary studies to treat the masterpiece as some kind of rupture from existing ascetic forms or 
existing formal conventions. And he wants to point out the continuity between uh, the, the, the genre and this uh, singular uh, work, which w- would entail you know, delving into uh, I guess the, the archival history of, of mass literature that, that, was, that was going on um, at the time, uh, or maybe trying to illuminate the uh, rhetorical you know, traits or conventions of the masterpiece by going through mass literature into the um, in, into that masterpiece. And so, I think he has a he wishes to have a much more um, overarching or inclusive view of the development of culture or development of literature that doesn't um, treat different works as autonomous entities. Um, it does feel like in, in some pieces he does he does make that mistake, and I, I think as we were discussing uh, before we started recording the episode, the, this collection is a complete, you know, um, jumbled bag, uh, evidence from the fact that the the the, the PDF that you got um, uh, had three essays added randomly, and you know it seems it seems like in different editions, he, Moretti is just like we'll just throw those three in because it's it's not a coherent work in its its entirety and in, in in some sense it doesn't seem to stick to the the project of trying to construct that sociology of literary forms that Moretti tries to theorize more explicitly in, in the introduction but to be to, to be fair to Moretti the opening paragraphs of the introduction are like what I what what, what you could call a classic uh, ass covering move because he's like, okay, well, all of these different essays come from different places at different times when I'm trying to accomplish different things. Um, so what I'm doing in the introduction is trying to give a more systematic and abstract discussion of things that you know have been of analyses that have been more intuitive or more occasional. And then he gives the seconds of excuse of. I change my mind about things all the time. So uh, stuff I've written elsewhere, I probably don't think that now, and I won't think that um, in the future. But um, which is a, you know, a classic, you know, exclusive if you're trying to put together a, a bunch of work, or it's equivalent to that the line of "this is outside the scope of the paper" or similar uh, disclaimers. But this means that the the work as a whole has a you know a, a sense of incoherence that can be kind of uh, uh, confusing and disappointing. I think that part of the disappointment is partially because of just that title, subtitle of Sociology of Literary Forms, accompanied by an introduction that admits that they're fragmentary. And he says something along the lines of, even though I deal with theory, I feel much more comfortable dealing with concrete cases to try and analyze specific claims. So I'm not someone who enjoys so much the creating a big theoretical framework for all my work to fit into. I'm going to try and do something along that lines in the in this introduction, preface, whatever. And it just doesn't really succeed when this would be just much more comfortable being understood as a collection of essays written over time on literature. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, precisely. And books that he likes. Um, and that he does try to relate to certain conditions and thinkers and questions in society around these texts. For example, in the first one, I think it is, he talks about the emergence of Shakespearean and Jacobian drama and tragedy and the idea of kind of the uh, the idea of the political as such uh, in relationship to tragedy, tragedy related to whether the king has absolute power or if power is contested by the political body and things like that. Um, he relates the idea of the Sherlock Holmes detective story in relationship to society's need to categorize and understand what's going on where the the criminal only the criminal can truly be sort of individualistic but that will always necessarily mean that guilt is upon you as the criminal Mm -hmm. it is never social um so he, he does have interesting theses like that but he with sherlock holmes he never goes into saying here was what was going on with the London Police Department mm-hmm. at the time of writing. And here's here's the rate at which people were incarcerated or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or even it's kind of funny because he with sociology of literature, he never mentions who the audience is, really, or who would be reading. And that's a prime case of Sherlock Holmes is one of the examples that comes much closer to popular literature mm-hmm. in this this collection, and he still never really goes into who would be reading this, who would be understanding it, um, what was the popularity of it. He just kind of asserts these really broad connections that I think are strong literary claims to understanding the literature, but I don't really know if I agree with some of the way they're framed in relation to society. And some of them, the Ulysses one, for example, he has this essay where he's talking about Ulysses and James Joyce. And I think that he has a thesis that is defensible, but I don't really know if I agree that it's as self-evident as he claims that Ulysses, he takes it to be so satirical that it is almost purely a condemnation of modernity and purely a condemnation of the modern condition, purely a condemnation of everyday life in the early 20th century that I just don't, uh, having read Ulysses, I just don't see it in the reading experience or in my understanding of what was going on with James Joyce as kind of a figure in modernity and how he talks about composing his work. So it's kind of weird to me because it's even in that's an example where I just read it as literary and I thought, I don't really know if I agree with his literary conclusions, regardless of the social, the social context in which he's trying to drop it. Yes, and it seems that in that Ulysses essay, the premise of the argument springs from T.S. Eliot's remark on uh, Ulysses and uh, about uh, myth and history. And so it seems less like he's delve. It seems less like Moretti is delving into the rhetorical figures of the the, the text to understand those you know, systems of values or forms of consent that are being produced by the text. And more like he's, I don't know, I guess competing with uh, T.S. Eliot's interpretation of Ulysses. Um, 
rather than using Ulysses as um, or using the figures of Ulysses as a you know a sociological or historical fact. I, I, I just wanted to return to the remarks you made about the negligence of uh, audience for uh, Moretti's neglecting of the audience for Sherlock Holmes and his seeming his seeming lack of interest in defining the audience of mass literature. And it strikes me that in this book, Moretti's definition of mass literature is just all of the literature that's just not dealt with in literature departments, which you know, I, I think that's more of a, you know, a slightly mean dig at Moretti, but it does, he doesn't offer any alternative um, conception of uh, mass literature that would suggest you know, to, uh, anything else is the case. And um, also to uh, go back to your remark about why he doesn't raise stuff like uh, the, the police in London at the time while um, uh, Doyle was writing the Sherlock Holmes stories, I think it, it probably relates to his uh, concept of uh, the pertinence of historical factors he suggests that there are some historical uh, events or phenomena or tendencies that are more pertinent to the study of a particular literary object than um, other ones. And he raises this just before the uh, section on his call for a falsifiable criticism. And I was expecting him to reintroduce this idea of pertinence and maybe establish a criteria for what is pertinent but it does um remain unexplored so it is very possible to raise that criticism of like why would you why wouldn't you dwell on certain very pertinent factors to the uh, history or the you know the, the social context of uh, uh this text when it is, you know, evidently quite pertinent, and so it, it, it strikes me a little of these analyses are leaning more on, well, as he as he admits in the introduction, it's very intuitive, it's very subjective, and it doesn't seem like it measures up to the criteria or standards that he sets out for himself in that section on the falsifiable criticism. So, a lot of his um, analyses and you know hypotheses about the the, the texts about Ulysses about um, Sherlock Holmes, or, or also in a certain sense, the, uh, the, the Dracula and Frankenstein, even though I do actually quite like that essay, um, they, they seem eminently falsifiable. I, I do want to say, I actually think that most of the essays are quite fine reading as, you know... Indeed, yeah, yeah, indeed, yeah, yeah. Commentaries on literature. Like, I, I think that his his interpretations are fun and and intriguing and i also in particular really like his his essay on dracula and frankenstein mm -hmm. um or he's you know what it's it's frankenstein's monster is the victorian recoiling away from the the effects of proletarianization connecting it to decay in social order physical ugliness and exposes a sense of Victorian, the Victorian idea that the proletariat will in the end be unnecessary and society can turn away from the grand exploration, the grand industrialization, 
it will all be superfluous to the natural moral order of things. Um, and then on the other hand, there is the later, kind of more late Victorian, maybe even early Edwardian uh, Dracula, where Dracula is the aristocrat who is not an aristocrat. He's the aristocrat who is the monopolist capitalist. He has no servants. He has no, no, no one um, while he uh, working for him while he lives in luxury, but he accumulates and sucks the blood of everyone else. And the idea that it is, you know, the, the monopoly, the monopolist is necessarily projected outside of London, outside of England. He is the foreign oriental invader who then, uh, invades their shores to to disrupt what would otherwise be proper uh religiously proper competition that is influenced by religious and social values that preserve fairness among people which and i think it's actually a very brilliant essay Mm -hmm. but again he never really actually delves into any social data (laughs) to deal with say what were the standards of monopoly capital at the time in Mm -hmm. europe and england um and and one of his one of the later parts is he talks about there's the american character in dracula who he kind of casts as being this figure who is presented as this dashing you know daring american adventurer who throughout the novel never confronts dracula Whenever Dracula appears, he kind of vanishes. And his only literary role is to seemingly run in once Dracula leaves and go, oh, I didn't get here in time. And then he dies at the end. And he says, this is kind of an attempt to present American industrialism as not useful and in line with British values, but also not villainized as Dracula, per se. and 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 it, it it is interesting, but that part in particular was just so speculative to me, and so ingrained with just talking about this one character's behavior. I just was not sure how on earth it could really be leveled out as a falsifiable claim um, about English perceptions of American industry at the time. Um, I mean, it can be falsifiable in the sense that you can just go, no, England wasn't really thinking of America that way in general, but but it's not put forth in a way that you understand what would actually be useful for countering what he's trying to lay forth, I guess. like He, he never really says, I am led to think this because X, Y, and Z, other than him just saying, the character behaves in this way, so I'm going to say it's this. One thing that was weird to me is in in the edition that I got that had those three extra essays at the end, I actually kind of felt were more interesting from the social claims because particularly he has the one essay where he goes through how the idea of truth gets connected to rupture and crisis in in modernist literature and then he points out that there's a conflation of this 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 is an intersection that appears with the left wing and the right wing 
of politics, there's this idea of that the crisis, once you reach a period of crisis, everything gets laid bare. There is an element of truth that appears and has to be dealt with in a definitive way. And he says, you know, you have Carl Schmitt's concept of, of uh, the state of exception, the or? state of exception, which of course influences people like Walter Benjamin. But even before that, you have Lukash is talking about things in this way. And then of course you have Sorel and it's an intriguing piece in part because it's one of the only ones where at the very end, he actually just lays forth why he thinks this is important for left-wing politics. Oh, indeed. So he actually moves it into an aspect of, in terms of social movements today, he thinks this is important because he thinks that left-wing politics is, in, in the span of modernity has a tendency to fall onto this idea of melancholy where only the moment of crisis reveals any sort of social truth that can be acted on. And so there's this tendency to think you need your crisis, you need the crisis to impart values to you, or you need to have the right values that will be given truth by the crisis. He says, no, I'm not saying that we shouldn't expect crisis or think in terms of the inevitability of crisis or think in terms of strategy or maneuvering what he wants to say is that we need to understand that there are certain values in social conditions that can lead to crisis and that can connect with crises but it, it's not a matter of finding the the truth that emerges through the crisis and this is of course he he has a thing where he says if if anecdotal evidence matters at all it relates to him being from italy where he thinks that this focus on this kind of crisis is truth, operaismo, autonomist, heart and almost heart and agree. You get the sense is kind of what he's maybe indicate implicating here. This this kind of focus is really dangerous and it damaged a lot of what was going on with leftist politics in Italy. And he basically says that he thinks this is the core of left wing terrorism. Not only does it just lead to these spontaneous acts of violence that he thinks don't get anywhere, but he also says it leads you to thinking that everything is constantly just a lie and that the truth will be revealed to you when the crisis comes, which means that you don't actually need to be thinking all that critically when there's no crisis. It was a really intriguing piece to me and has very little to do with anything else in the book. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And and I'm struggling to think of elsewhere in the text where he might start to dwell on the parameters of you know, contemporary you know, political action. I think there are some moments in that last essay, where, well, the last essay that's on the, uh, the wasteland, where he talks about this, I guess, the, the, the disillusion of, you know, uh, truth and values in uh, mass culture, but that's the that's sort of the closest he comes to sort of a more contemporary uh, political or cultural criticism. I wonder what it what other avenues his studies of genre can go down politically, because the start of the moment of truth essay is okay. We have. Uh, a tragedy and the novel, and they had certain uh, temporal and spatial uh, histories. 
and they contributed to the development of certain forms of thinking about crises and uh, truth and um, other p- political matters. And th- th- this is how the history of uh, tragedy contributed to this form of politics, i.e. left-wing terrorism today. And I wonder, you, know, you wonder where his other investigations of genre could go or whether that's a possible aim of genre studies, I guess. I think turning to, this is something that we discussed already before we were recording. One of the key issues I have is that if the introduction is supposed to be kind of a skeleton key into his change in approach why he would no longer write in the style of these essays i still think that he's resorting to certain claims in the introduction that are not particularly convincing particularly because he's taking this view of aesthetics are essentially related to rhetoric artistic and literary forms are inherently related to rhetoric and he then ties rhetoric to cultural conditions and social discussion which is a pretty fair connection to make and he then goes on to again what i think is a little bit like a frederick jameson sort of view that once you understand broader social conditions you can understand how that then relates to the literary form as such and so you have to think about what the rhetoric is what is the rhetoric that is convincing in the society it's weird because he says well at the end of the day it's all about bringing in consent, particularly because the modern society is an attempt to involve many, many agonizing viewpoints, many agonistic perspectives and projects are all happening at once, but we're trying to produce the social space in modern modernity where they can all come to exist with one another, even if they don't reconcile their individual differences in viewpoints there's a reconciliation at the level of producing the space where they all exist um and then you produce a sort of consent to different viewpoints that in and of itself leads to a resistance to changing the liberal modernist order but one of the issues with that is that one everything is able to be stated as this is a thing that brings about consent in the order as such but you no longer actually have to deal with the rhetorical battles among them. Mm. There's no reason to actually look at that because any rhetorical battle or particular viewpoint just becomes a matter of getting consent for this broader thing going on anyway. And the general idea of just it all being like this consent-based thing doesn't seem to me to be that different than a lot of close readings approaches that basically just go into a post-Althusserian it's an expression of the social ideology. It's, you know, it, it doesn't read all that different to me as a claim. Then we were also mentioning he doesn't have a very clear criterion about which elements of social analysis are are relevant when you're discussing this. And then two, it's a it's a partially historical claim because it's about the idea of modernity mainly after the kind of Elizabethan state. Mm-hmm. He, he uses Shakespeare as kind of an um, example of the turning point. But then he turns to Freud and civilization of discontent, which makes the broader claim that civilization 
as such is a managing of consent and you know the the repression of the kind of individual id drive and 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 what have you um to to be very glossy and reductive about it which is a very weird example to make and to use to justify his his project when moving away from these kinds of essays to a more falsifiable and quantitative method because that is considered a very speculative claim on Freud's part even if it is you know even if it has inspired a lot of anthropology and stuff the general claims about the individual id ego superego relationship in civilization throughout history it, it's it's a very speculative claim and it's not related to his historical break with the idea that the relationship of literature literature to consent is historically specific in part because there's a gradual growth at which literature can even be consumed by a real mass public. Mm -hmm. Even the introduction is a bit weird in its attempt to distinguish his modern approach from these earlier pieces. Undoubtedly. And I think that he's very concerned with trying to establish a uh, criterion on falsifiability for his literary insights, but he does very little work of interrogating or questioning the sources from which he extracts his, you know, sociological or historical uh, takes. And I mean, I, well, when I was reading this uh, uh, book and comparing it to the other texts that we've uh, read in the set, I recognized certain affinities between Moretti's project and the work of uh, Raymond Williams, especially the base and superstructure essay. And both thinkers put forward the same remark, namely that the historical and the sociological should not just be uh, a, an extra or a, a marginal factor in literary analyses. They actually can be something much more integral. And what Williams includes in his theory that makes me prefer his work to Moretti's are the, the notions of you know, uh, t totality and hegemony, which permits one to address issues of uh, uh, class and different forms of cultural production and how that relates to um, other forms of economic production or practical activity as a whole. And what Moretti might benefit from is something like William's structure of feeling of that, of that distinction between the residual, the emergence and um and the dominance and also his idea of incorporation because his moretti's notion of consent is kind of uh uni unilateral and it probably requires more forms of uh stratification to try and capture different forms of you know temporality and social class and those different aspects that go into forming a um, 
a, a society or, or or a culture. And without that, it, he has no choice but to resort to um, the the sweeping generalizations of Freud's civilization's discontents because he can't quite capture or um, investigate or, or put together all of the all of the different processes that um, uh, Williams is able to address. Maybe it's just because it was the first book we read, but I feel like that's one that we always turn to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially when we're we're reading something that was related to literature or what have you. We we like to go back to Raymond Williams, but um, I think one of the things that is interesting in Williams, and I'm also going to connect it to Bourdieu because I've been reading Pierre Bourdieu. Yeah, the Christmas gifts, Christmas gifts. <laughs> yeah, Christmas gifts. But it's also someone who I have in my mind when we talk about Williams, because one of Moretti's turns is, as we said, to the idea of mass literature or popular literature that is read by a wide audience. And then he connects that to the idea of securing consent. But one of the problems, and precisely because he doesn't, is, is precisely, as we mentioned, that he also doesn't deal with audience or readership. And it's interesting thinking about that in relation to Williams or Bourdieu, because I think both of them would also say that there is a lot of importance in understanding that there are mass works, there is mass engagement with with culture that is not reducible to singular, quote unquote, great works. But at the same time, I think they, more than Moretti, also say there is not really a singular mass audience as such. Yes, very true. There is not the popular audience. Um, and especially, I think, with Bourdieu, he has the famous, uh, uh, well, I don't know how famous he really is to English readers, but who aren't into academics or sociology. But um, one of his more interesting pieces, which I was sharing around after the latest U.S. election, is precisely called There Is No Public Opinion. Oh, very good. Yeah, yeah. And his his claim is not that there are not methods of trying to understand the opinions of people broadly in society. His point is that you cannot actually make reference to the public opinion that is just out there. With with the with the quote unquote great artworks, there there tends to be this he he was also very critical of in the 70s and 60s this kind of tendency for communists and leftists to get to get into you know well culture is the ground of communism because culture is shared by everyone Aye. everyone shall have access to literature and it it cannot be contained and he just says no there's there's 100% divisions about who has access to this stuff mm-hmm. um and i think that raymond williams is like that too and uh, Williams, I think, has a little bit more of a turn to say, oh, but there's these localized practices. There's the workers' culture and stuff. Um, I think Bourdieu is a little bit more skeptical of that. And he he does say that there are countercultures. So they, they do acknowledge any kind of mass media and culture is usually produced by people who have power. So there is that consent gathering aspect to it. But because the recipients of that are so divided, you have to cross-examine the consent being produced effects it produces on individual groups that are not just this one broad mass public and i mean other thinkers in you know the, the british cultural studies Merleau, 
uh, like to complicate that um, whole notion of uh, receiver, well, uh, transmitter to re- receiver when talking about artworks or um, pieces of culture. I mean, I, I'm reminded of the, the Stuart Hall essay about you know, coding and uh, uh, decoding and how one has to bear in mind that items of, of culture or works of art are always going to be you know, uh, part of processes of you know uh, uh, circulation and dissemination, uh, dissemination before they even uh, reach an audience. And although although they may have um, this um, aim, albeit implicit, of securing consent, there is no guarantee that the uh, the audience, even if it is a target audience. Will actually um, proffer uh, uh, their, their consent, and in fact, they might uh, try to subvert the, the the messages of you know uh, trying to secure consent that that uh, work of art or work of culture is trying to emit. And I think that's perhaps one dimension that's underdeveloped in Moretti's work. Of what is the, the the margin of you know the, the, the reader's subversion of a work or a, a, a misreading or a maybe transplanting what, a, a work of high literature into a, a more popular uh, form or uh, other rhetorical strategies that are actually tackling or trying to overcome or trying to resist other rhetorical strategies. And so I, I think that even though Moretti is very eager to explore a realm of aesthetic conflict, um, he often reduces it to you know uh, a kind of conqueror and conqueror. The audience is always going to be conquered by this... Um, project of trying to uh, uh, seize cons- uh, seize consent from them and there's no other option it's consent to the empty space of many arguing viewpoints where none can individually succeed or overcome the others but those viewpoints are just kind of left his own writing in a in a sense just doesn't investigate that aspect of it mm-hmm, precisely he kind of consents to that general just framework which is not super satisfying we didn't really go through like what the claims of each essay as such were i don't know if there were there any that you like particularly thought had interesting theses or that were exemplary of what was going on i think um if uh anyone is listening and they're you know still considering uh getting this book the advice is don't start with the introduction it's the worst place to start because as soon as you read the introduction you start comparing each and every essay to the uh, claims and aims that Moretti sets out at the beginning so while I was reading this book when it came to you know finishing each essay I may have made sort of sweeping judgments of like yay or nay of Yes, it does what Moretti said he was going to do, or no, it doesn't do what he was going to do. But I do appreciate some of the insights in, of course, we've discussed the dialectic of fear, that um, you know, the, the discussion of uh, Frankenstein and Dracula, and especially his argument about 
rhetorical strategies in each text and their relation to terror and how in uh, Frankenstein, um, Mary Shelley is trying to address a kind of uh, enlightened and more sort of disinterested reader, whereas for Dracula, Bram Stoker is trying to uh, engulf you in this uh, uh, sensation of uh, fear through the um, narrative structure. And I think he also makes uh, a, a similar argument in his essay on Sherlock Holmes and how uh, Arthur Conan Doyle uh, puts the reader in the position of Watson in a place that's sort of between uh, a passive, purely receptive reading, but also trying to uh, guess ahead of the book. And so there's this, this kind of authoring. The the reader is the slightly better Watson. Indeed, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think those moments where he is actually concentrating on uh, how certain rhetorical strategies in the text affect uh, the reader are very intriguing. But as I said, as I said earlier, the reader is only allowed to do what the text allows it to do. Um, the reader is only allowed to be the target of the writer's strategy rather than be, well, not free, but have the... No one's free these days. No, that's a very cynical point of view. Uh, no, I have the, I guess, the alternative of, you know, the only thing that's bringing to mind is like the situationist's detournment, which is a very clumsy way of, you know, using that idea, but how you can sort of remix or like uh, uh, subvert or redesign a text with a different ideological uh, message that goes against the sort of uh, message that was encoded into the text in the first place. But, but Moretti doesn't see that possibility in the reader, I think, in this text, which he might do in his later work, but I'm, st- I'm still not sure. I think he is definitely very um, concerned about, you know, publication, dissemination, what do texts do to uh, 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 readers rather than what readers can do to different texts. I think I think that makes me uneasy about uh, his the division of high literature and mass literature. It's almost the the claim that you see on the classic portrayal of the vulgar economic reductionist that, you know, if culture has any effect, it's to stabilize the economic relationships of society. It cannot be otherwise, except that he never goes into the economics or the structure or, or the relationships. He just says that literature just does this because that's what literature does. And it leaves you wondering if he even thinks that there's a capacity for artistic expression that doesn't do this in any society. It's not very clear to me if he thinks that there's any other kind of product that can be entertained. He mentioned something very briefly about it in the introduction of where he says that uh, descent from this, you know, uh, rhetorical system of values or this aim of securing consent is actually just a, continuation of the securing of the consent rather than resistance to it. So it just sort of gets swept up in a development of a certain rhetorical system, of a certain uh, uh, perspective or a certain specific point of view that's seeking to become universal. I can't remember which one it was. There was one essay where he he ends it with a kind of tongue-in-cheek, turn-to-the-camera-and-wink thing where he says something like, how can we say that such literature, maybe maybe it's the, the Dracula and 
Frankenstein one. He says something like, how can we say that such literature is escapist when its effects are the real, the, they are the real, they are the reality, you know, impressed upon the reader of the social order or whatever. Like, I don't know. It's he 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 plays with the kind of common theorist who's trying to disrupt you and get you to think differently. But it, it, there's also just no seeming way out. Um, as much as I do enjoy his points about, say, yes, the avant-garde's, the avant-garde's themselves had an effect on the production of mass literature, which is, I think, actually a good point. Um, there, I, I think it was actually in one of the three essays that wasn't included in the other editions. Yeah, the spell of indecision. He, he has a, a good kind of poetic line about storefront windows being the ultimate evocation of surrealist poetry where it's one thing after another equated to each other on display. And, and and in some ways, that is something that the situationists also thought in their radical writing. You know, like part of their project was to say there is no avant-garde. The the culture, if if there is a revolutionary aspect to culture, it is not found at that level. Um, and, and a much greater change is needed, even though they also end up getting swept into merely being cultural, artistic figures um but it yeah it's just there's almost just no clear levels of distinction Mm -hmm. within his project i guess i agree i feel like i walk away from this text um appreciating certain insights and 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 stimulated by some of his you know uh, lines of inquiry but i Apart from that, I can sort of take this back to the library and never turn to it ever again. Um, but as we were um, saying, there you know there are parts that are very interesting. I also wanted to mention the uh, part in the essay on Balzac where he talks about the replacement of the duel with roulette in the metropolis um and how life in the metropolis you can no longer have a conflict between two uh persons and the rhetorical figure to represent you know uh, metropolitan life is the roulette because um no one is technically battling one another and you have sort of no one else to blame if things get fucked Except for the for, for the house, for you know the uh, system that's draining uh, your money away, and yet in these novels of the metropolis, um, even if you lose all of your winnings and you end up destitute, there's always that myth of being able to uh, spring back to uh, affluence, and this is and this is the you know the classic you know, myth that animates a lot of uh novels set in the city and for Moretti particularly Balzac. I feel like I have to keep like reorienting that it's not that his writing is in its of itself bad or that his literary readings are bad. Because they're actually quite enjoyable. And there were certainly aspects where I thought if I was sitting down and writing about literature and stuff and about art, there there I probably would be able to find certain notes and observations by him that I would gladly cite. I just don't know if I would really want to cite him for his greater argument about any kind of methodology. 
undoubtedly. But and talking about you know citing certain parts, I'm just going to sort of flick through and try and find the lines that really struck me as this sort of beautiful yeah uh, in the essay about ulysses he says ulysses is a well his larger argument is that ulysses is drawing on all of these different literary styles because of the you know ex- exhaustion of all forms of style and its lack of connection to to society and to modernity that's a that's a that's a reckless summary but i just want to uh point to this great line that he has there Ulysses is a mad clearance sale of literary styles. And it is no accident that Joyce does not found a school and that those who use him as a model imitate one of Ulysses' many styles portray the fundamental intention of his novel, the systematic refusal to assume one style as the privileged vehicle of expression. But I think that's that's a just incredible characterization of Ulysses, the mad clearance sale of literary styles. The whole book is full of those really evocative phrases, which are very quotable, even even if you were to write something where you're disagreeing with Moretti's position, you just sort of seize onto something like that, plop that in the, plop that in the paper, that's going to get a laugh or something. I would say, you know, if you're someone who, I mean, like me, enjoys reading literary commentary, literary criticism in general, um, and is particularly intrigued by the figures or works that are discussed in this book. It's pretty, if you read the description, it basically says he talks about this, this, and this. You've got Ulysses, Dracula, Frankenstein, some Shakespeare, other lesser known figures of the same period, got Balzac, T.S. Eliot on the Wasteland. If if you're just someone who's interested in some, uh, pretty well-written original viewpoints, I would, yeah, probably pick this up. It was pretty easy to read. If you're looking for a book that really tries to connect cultural production to social conditions in specific times and places, I don't know if it's really going to help you that much. Even if he is also known for being a obtuse, highly theoretical literary critic, I think something like Frederick Jameson's book on postmodernity is more well suited to that um or else just other people like pierre bourdieu's work on mass culture and distinction or raymond williams or uh, i think that there's just a lot of other people out there who have a clear thesis of talking about the history of a cultural situation and its relationship to literature and art and aesthetics and maybe i'm completely wrong and he he really just goes really deep into all that stuff more clearly in his later works i i would like to go and check him out um i do think it's interesting that he's clearly someone who is trying to still deal with theoretical terrain even though he moved in that direction he still clearly likes talking about walter benjamin and freud and marxist analysis even though he has a different level and approach now, which is more interesting to me than a lot of quantitative literary studies that is really dry and boring to me. So I, I, I would be curious to see that. Maybe maybe he is much more addressing the concerns we have. But in terms of reading this individual book, that's that's kind of what I'd say. Uh, I'd agree. I'd, uh, in agree. In agree. Okay. Uh, no, uh, I, I, I agree totally with that assessment i'd be curious about why 
Moretti doesn't appeal to other theorists. Well, he does have an appeal, but it does seem like it, it, it is limited to the the field of uh, comparative literature, which makes sense with it, with his later work because he's obviously thinking through the historical and geographical uh, spread of uh, different forms of literature. But it, it, it seems like thinkers like Frederick Jameson and uh, Raymond Williams and other theorists who started out primarily as you know uh, literary critics or are based in literary critics have been more successful in uh, blending the, the sociological, historical, uh, and the cultural than Moretti. And I think you know, perhaps it is that distinction between the the mass and the high, which remains inter- uninterrogated in this book, most certainly, that does trip him up, even though he's trying to deconstruct it. But yeah, I'd be interested to hear what you think about his his later work and whether he really does deliver on what he was trying to promise with the introduction here without abandoning some of the cleverer rhetorical analysis that you find in this book, even though he, to a certain extent, disparages close reading, he's very good at it. It would be interesting to see him balance the close reading or rhetorical analysis that he accomplishes here with the the distant reading that he uh, achieves with you know his computational methods in his later work. But who knows, maybe, maybe they're irreconcilable. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Radical Thoughts Podcast. This is the second-to-last episode for this first season, the last book in the first set of the Radical Thinkers series is The System of Objects by Jean Baudrillard. Baudrillard. I don't know how you say it. We are thinking that after we finish the first season, we're going to maybe take a couple months off of public episodes. However, we are going to continue to make Patreon-only content during that time, so you will still get an episode a month if you are a Patreon subscriber. We will likely be talking about some books that are outside of the Radical Thought series. I might continue grabbing some more interviews too, so make sure to subscribe if you want to keep getting content. It's just $3 a month and you get all all of the stuff that we make on the Patreon, so it's always appreciated. That's all for now. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us next time. A plausible argument at this point is, come on, 199,000 novels that no one had ever read or studied, how can there not be a novel in that part? And intuitively, one sees the point. But another argument for quantification in the humanities, this time from anthropology, complicates what seems otherwise to be so possible. This time it's an anthropologist, André Regoire-Durin, in Gesture and Speech, written a few years after Rodel's essay. We know more about people exchanging goods for reasons of prestige than about the kinds of exchanges that go on every day. More about the circulation of dowry money than about the selling of vegetables. Dowry and vegetables is a perfect antithesis for this paradigm shift. Uh, Both are very important, but for completely opposite reasons. Dowry is important because it happens once in a lifetime. 
Vegetables are important because we eat them every day.